thank you so much, uh, Nicholas. And just, just to amplify what Nicholas has just said, um, I've been lucky enough to be involved with Classics for All since it started. And you will see on the leaflets and on the website, the response from the students and the children is heart melting. It is extraordinary. I, think, I don't think it's been uh, replicated, but one of my favourites is uh, somebody who said... I didn't know that life was interesting. I now realise it is. Um, and it seems to me you can't have a, have a greater uh, and more fundamental plaudit than that. So it is a very good thing, Classics for All. And um, I am stealing your last hour of English sunshine today, so I will attempt to bring a little bit of Mediterranean sunshine into the room. Um, and also, because it's the very end of the day, we thought we would indulge ourselves a little and what indeed academically and materially could be more indulgent than an hour in the company of Helen of Troy. Um, what I want to try to do is to, to look, I think as it says um, on, the, on the schedule for the day, at both the truth and the myth of Helen, and all the classicists in the room will of course realise that muthoi, myths in ancient Greek, do not mean fairy tales. More often than not, they are in fact points of information. So I'm going to be wrestling with those, the truth and the myth, and the reception that Fiona talked about so brilliantly earlier. Um, I, I just want to apologise for one thing. I have to rush off after I've spoken. I'm actually filming at the British Museum uh, later tonight. We're getting bits out of the cases of the Viking exhibition, which we have to do, of course, once all the public have gone. It would get a bit messy if we were getting opening the cases while they were there. Um, I was there filming until the early hours last night, and I had a rather sort of beautiful moment when I was communing with Ramses II in the Egyptian Hall, and a huge rat uh, meandered <laughs> past me. So if anybody's got any tips, because I'm not a fan of rats, I can cope with snakes, and I know that you carry a lemon in your pocket to scare off snakes, but I think a lemon might be rat bait. So if anybody's got any tips of how to deal with the rats tonight, please tell me before I leave. But forgive me if I run, because I just we, we just have to go there um, for the cameras. So as I said, I'm going to talk about Helen, um, and Helen really in three guises, as a goddess, as a princess and as a whore. Um, but before I started, I just wanted to share a very brief anecdote with you. Um, I'd written a book on Helen, and television being television, thought it would be a good idea to turn the book into a series. Um, and I sat down with the producer, um, and he said, it's great, great. Helen of Troy, fantastic, perfect telly, loads of sex and violence. Um, but the only trouble is, he said, uh, if, we do, if we make a film about Helen, all those Bronze Age and Iron Age remains, they're a bit static, aren't they? Not much dynamism in kind of knee-high ruins. I'll tell you what I'd like to do. Uh, I would like to recreate the Battle of Troy on the plains of Troy. And I sort of listened, nodding, thinking, yes, well, where's he going with this? And he said, I'll tell you what, there are fantastic uh, uh, images of chariots, aren't there, from uh, both the Mycenaean Greek world and from the Anatolian Hittite world, which indeed there are for the Bronze Age. He said, so what I want to do, I want to replicate and recreate these chariots and put them onto the plains of Troy. And um, as he said that, I have to say, my heart sank uh, I could see all my academic credentials slowly <laughs> melting away in front of my eyes because I knew that this self-same producer had once produced Blue Peter. Um, so I just paused for a moment and then said, well, 
Okay, okay. Well, I think you are right. There are these fantastic images. We will do this, but only if we do it absolutely as, as a living archaeology experiment. So we will do it if we're very purist, if we just use the materials that were used in the Bronze Age, if we, if we, if we stick uh, rigorously uh, to the evidence that we had. And he agreed, and so we sort of had a pact. And we did recreate these, these chariots, which are now being used by uh, Birmingham, in fact. They're very, very interesting shipped them out to uh, to Troy, to the site of Troy, at great expense. And on the morning uh, that we were due to film, there was this kind of panic-stricken knocking at my door at about five o'clock in the morning. And he said, Bethany, Bethany, the, the same producer, I've forgotten to book any bloody horses. <laughs> so uh, there we were with these very expensive, very beautiful uh, reproduction Bronze Age chariots and no horses. So I looked at him through narrowed eyes and said, well, Bill, I think we need to sort that out. And he had behind him our assistant producer, who was, of course, a classicist. And the classicists are the most practical uh, uh, creatures I know and very, uh, uh, very good at observation as well. And this classicist said, I've seen there are some uh, travellers, some, some Romanists, some gypsies, who are currently farming on the plains of Troy. Who, who's been to Troy recently? I mean, you, you know, so you, so you know, the citadel that we call Troy, which I think probably was Troy, actually. Uh, now, flat, fertile farmland below. The sea used to come much further in, and it's used to farm tomatoes and, and cotton. Um, and so these, these, these travelling uh, gypsies come from actually the borders of, of Iran and Iraq, come up from Syria, and they farm the cotton uh, every year. And anyway, so the classicist said, where there are gypsies, there are horses. I'm going to go and see if I can borrow some of these horses. So she beetled off down the hill, came back an hour later, said, I've got them. Um, the the, uh, the travellers hadn't actually agreed to lend us uh, <laughs> their horses. We paid 2,500 euros per horse, uh, which I think is possibly the most expensive any Hollywood production ever has paid for, particularly for these kind of clapped out old nags, kind of make their way exhaustedly pulling the cotton. But anyway, we were desperate, so we hitched up our chariots to the gypsies' horses and we reenacted with two chariots uh, the battle the battle of, uh, of, of Troy. And when, indeed, and we actually ended up using the gypsies. They ended up being the spear carriers of Troy. And I think you can see that on YouTube. Anyway, at the end of this uh, archaeological, so-called archaeological experiment, um, really, to, uh, this is relevant to Helen, by the way. I haven't just gone off on a kind of after-dinner ramble. Um, we... we to, to kind of to be polite, really, we thought we ought to interview these uh, gypsy men about their experience of recreating the Battle of Troy. So we sat round a, a campfire. It was all rather atmospheric. We'd found an interpreter by this time. And I sort of sat there as well, and with my best, you know, television presenter voice said, so, so, I know that you tell one another tales um, around the campfire. Do you, do you speak of Troy? Do you tell one another of the, of the great story of the Iliad? Total silence, very embarrassing silence. They, these men had been coming to this place that they knew was called Troy uh, for generations, as long as their fathers' fathers could remember, they'd come in to work this land. But they hadn't, didn't know that it was significant in any way. They'd never heard of, of the Battle of, uh, of Troy, the Trojan War. Uh, they'd never heard of the Iliad. 
So, um, kind of slightly anxiously, because of course the camera's turning all this time, you can't have silence in front of the camera. So I said, okay, so uh, uh, what about Achilles? Um, knowing that the dreadful film Troy had just come out in Turkey and was very, very popular. So Brad Pitt, in his famous leather miniskirt, was on all the bus stops of, uh, in Turkey. So I thought, well, they must have seen that. So I said, so what about Achilles? Good, you know, macho warrior hero. Do, do, do you speak of Achilles? Again, total silence. And then I said, okay, well, so Helen, does Helen of Troy mean anything to you? And I'm really not exaggerating the dramatic effect here. Immediately, their thumbs <laughs> went up like this. And one of the men made this gesture <laughs> with that at the end. And at that point, we needed no interpreter. It was very clear that they had a fixed, indeed a vivid, image of Helen of Troy in their minds. And it was a rather extraordinary moment, because there I was talking to a group of illiterate, nomadic travellers who had not heard of Homer, they'd not heard of the Iliad, they hadn't heard of Achilles, but they knew of Helen of Troy. They had an opinion of her. And it really buttressed, in fact, exactly what Fiona was saying earlier, this extraordinary fact that there are some figures from antiquity who cross civilizations, who cross that boundary between East and West, who, who travel both through time and in our imaginations and end up as vivid in the 21st century as they have been through time. And I certainly found that with Helen. So I thought I'd just take you on a, on a whistle-stop tour of the images that are being created of Helen through time. Um, what I found when I was researching the book is that there is not a single decade in human history, not a single decade, when Helen leaves the radar. So men, and it is particularly men, have always wanted to talk about her, to paint her, to write poems of her. And what is it? What, why does she have this hold over us? Is it because she is the world's desire? Is it because she's indeed an incarnation of the sex and violence that my television producer was so excited about at the beginning? Or... Is there something more serious going on here? Does she represent, in a way, the, the trouble with civilization? Because if you look at Helen's story, Helen is always a creature who is desired, who is wanted. When we want Helen, we're ravening for something that we do not have. If you think of all those people who have chased after Helen, Theseus, we're told, when she was just a child, eight, nine, or ten. The great heroes travelled the known world to fight for Helen. Paris takes her, Menelaus wants her back. So Helen, does she represent civilization? And just you tell me what you think once, once we finish. So here we are um, at the conception of Helen. This is a, a Roman copy of a Greek original. Uh, it's a headstone, a tombstone. And it shows that moment, uh, beautifully uh, commemorated in Yeats's poem, when Zeus espies the queen of Sparta, Leda, and she's washing herself, we're told, down on the banks of the river Eurotas. And she is so perfectly beautiful. Zeus is enraptured, and he has to have her. So he turns himself into a giant swan, of course, because he's Zeus, and he flies down and, and rapes her. And I, I don't know if you agree that this is... I think this is a very troubling image. Obviously, it's troubling. It's a swan raping a woman. But it's also troubling because there is something beautiful about it. Um, is, is Leda trying to force Zeus out, or is she reluctantly welcoming him in? 
also troubling for me because this was a very, very, very popular image throughout antiquity, quite often on headstones. This is how you would choose your life to be commemorated. Um, and it's a, it continues as a popular image. It's on many of the lamps that you find in the Roman period. Uh, if you were a, a self-respecting man about town, 18th century gentleman, open up your fob watch and you would have an image of Zeus making love to leader on the inside of your watch. So it's, it's a tenacious image. And of course, it's a violent and a troubling one because here we have uh, the, the forced impregnation of leader, And as we're told by those great myth makers and the playwrights, nine months later, Leda gives birth, of course, not to children, but to eggs. And out of one of these eggs uh, comes Helen and her twin sister, Clytemnestra. So, so even at her conception, there's something <laughs> troubling about Helen. Uh, the anxiety continues in Helen's story. This is um, a picture of the goddess Eris, the goddess of strife. It's, a, it's an early image, this, from the 6th century, about 560 BC. Um, very interesting, I'm sure you will all know this, but um, it's very rare for us to find an image of Eris portrayed because vase painters and pot painters, were, they were very anxious about physically painting her. They thought that if you painted Eris, the goddess of strife, you would somehow be welcoming her across the threshold. So she's quite rare um, in, in terms of art history. Um, but isn't she brilliant, Eris? This is the archetype of every bad fairy that you, that you read of in every fairy tale. And uh, she's indeed the archetype. She's there with her pointed black boots, her black wings, her long fingernails. Um, and of course, her story gives us the Sleeping Beauty story. So what we're told is that there was a great society wedding. Peleus, king, and Thetis were getting married on Mount Pelion. Everybody who was anybody, all the gods and the goddesses were invited. But Eris the goddess of strife had been left off the guest list. What a nightmare for any of those who've ever got married. Wedding lists are always a disaster, but you do not leave off Eris, the goddess of strife. Uh, being Eris, she decides to turn up anyway, storms in, throws down a golden apple, a very clever little moment of destabilisation, on it written, for the fairest. And of course, all the most beautiful mortals, all the greatest goddesses are here. So who is going to choose? Who is the fairest in that room? Um, Zeus, it always seems to me, uh, not only weak about the trousers, uh, but rather spineless, says, I couldn't possibly decide who is the fairest. I will choose. I will send my messenger to go and find somebody who will make this choice. The messenger goes off. We all know the story. Finds Paris, the young Trojan prince Paris, minding his own business, tending goats on Mount Ida. And uh, uh, Zeus's messenger says, great news. You have been chosen to choose who is the fairest of all the goddesses. Um, uh, there's a rather brilliant vase actually in the Louvre in Paris. It's the only one I've seen which has this image where all it has on the side is Paris's left leg running off because he realises that there's, there's trouble ahead. Um, but in most versions of the story, Paris stays and uh, the goddesses come to tempt him. Uh, Athena offers him absolute prowess in war. Hera offers him the known earth, dominion over the known world. And Aphrodite, the goddess of love, in many late antique uh, uh, versions, we're told, gets saucier and saucier as the years goes on, loosening her girdle, fluttering her eyelashes, recognising that it is a 15-year-old boy, of course, who's standing in front of her, says, I'm afraid, Paris, I can offer you nothing apart from the most beautiful woman in the world. 
so of course, Paris makes his choice of Aphrodite and is on track to meet his Helen. Um, Helen, again, in most of the 5th century representations that we have of her, this is a very beautiful one uh, from a calyx crater. We've got white, it's a very expensive piece, this, because rather than red on black or black on red, we've got <laughs> colour on white. I'm sorry, because actually in these neon lights, you probably can't see, but Helen's got this very fine purple headdress and a, and a, a, a draped uh, bit of purple cloth over her shoulders. Because purple is, of course, Helen's colour. And this is the great paradox of Helen, that she is both a prostitute in the eyes of many and a queen, so she wears purple for both reasons. Um, again, a great honour was being given to Helen, Helen to represent her with purple. You will all know this, but purple's a very, very expensive dye, very difficult to produce. Um, one of my most exciting moments making a television programme was when I went to Crete. We were making a programme at the Minoans, and we, and we replicated the reproduction of, as it's called in, in the Linear B tablets, Wanax Purpura, the king's purple, um, from these rather horrible little mollusks. I don't know if you know. You know that it comes from shellfish. But I don't know if you know that how they, how they used to produce it. It was a kind of factory farming, really, that they'd get these, these shellfish together, um, in, and they, these still exist um, in the south of Crete, into these kind of basins, uh, cover them uh, with human urine, and the, uh, the mollusk would really start sort of cannibalism. So you find in all the mollusk shells, they started to drill into one another. Um, and then when you boil this up with the urine, it helps to, to release the purple dye. Just sort of think how precious that purple was. You need 12,000 of these things in order to produce enough purple to colour the hem of a single garment. So the fact that purple is often used to represent Helen actually shows in a way, again, this is a woman no one wants to forget. We both want to love her and to hate her, but we're actually going to honour her with our richest goods, with our, with our richest materials. So here is Helen, as you can imagine, on the, on the other side of this fragment. There is Pallas. Interestingly, have you seen somebody's graffitied her name on the top uh, in, in Roman lettering? We don't know who did that. Somebody just said, here's Helen, here she is. Um, so Helen, we find her on fragments. We also find her, of course, in the literature. And I just pop this in because all the best manuscripts are in Oxford. This is no exception. Uh, this is fragment 16 of Sappho. This is, you can go and have a look at this in the Duke Humphreys reading room. Um, if you are a Sunday Times reader and you saw that Chris Pelling article, you've also seen the very exciting news about the discovery of two new Sappho fragments. Um, uh, genuinely exciting. Uh, and I think those are going to be... Uh, Dirk Obink has publish those, but we're actually going to be able to, to see those, I understand, in about two years' time. So watch this space, keep in contact with this. We'll, we'll tell people, won't we, when you can go and see them. Very exciting. This, this is uh, fragment 16, though. You're all classicists, so obviously you'd be able to translate that uh, without any help. But as it's the end of the day, I'll just uh, give you a few um, suggestions. So Sappho, fragment 16. Some say an army of horsemen, some an army on foot, and some a fleet of ships is the loveliest sight on this dark earth. But I say it is whatever you desire. And it's perfectly possible to make this clear to all. For Helen, the woman who by far surpassed all others in her beauty, left her husband, the best of men, and sailed far away to Troy. She didn't spare a single thought for her child nor for her dear parents, but, and this is actually, we don't have the name Aphrodite, but we're sure it's Aphrodite. Aphrodite, the goddess of love, 
led her astray, and again we have a lacuna we think is led her astray to desire. So desire is at the heart of Helen's story, and, and interesting I think that Sappho makes it very clear it's not Helen's fault, it's Aphrodite's fault uh, that she's got caught up in this dreadful love triangle. Um, later painters, this is a rather lovely uh, piece from the National Gallery from the 15th century, uh, seem to make it quite clear that actually often Helen really didn't mind uh, being abducted by Paris. I don't know if you can see, I've, I've never seen a, anybody looking kind of chirpier really about being <laughs> stolen and taken to Troy. There's Helen going piggyback on Paris, a rather sort of cherubic smile playing about her lips. Um, just note the shape of, of, that, of that image. We'll come back to that in a second. There were darker pieces. This is from 1469, just 10 years or so, uh, or t uh, a decade or so later. Again, this is a more typical image of Helen. She's rending her hair, being taken to those ships. And this is in the same room as that first image I showed you, um, room 52. Sometimes it moves between 52, 53, and 54 in the National Gallery. Uh, this is by the Master of the Judgment of Paris. The first image was by Zenobi Strozzi. I don't know if you agree, but I think this is such a compelling, nightmarish image, this. If you, if you just sort of spend a moment looking at it, because there is Helen reaching out to her courtiers who are just standing, talking. It's a bit like a dream, that terrible moment when you're shouting and nobody comes to help you. Uh, you can see she's thrashing her feet about, kicking up the, the toothed rim of her petticoats. And again, the courtiers just gently gesticulate because, in a way, they know that this is Helen's fate. This is something that has been decreed by the gods. It is Paris's ships and the inky blackness of that dark sea that awaits Helen, and neither she nor they can do anything about it. Um, does anybody know why it's this strange shape, this picture? Is there any, are there any sneaky Renaissance historians in the room? Um, I'll tell you why, because uh, actually, interestingly, of course, we display this in the National Gallery as a, as a beautiful piece of uh, a masterpiece, uh, an artwork. This was actually just a painted bit of furniture, this, um, very popular in the Renaissance, as was that, that earlier image that I showed you. It's a thing called a desco da parto. It's a birth tray. Uh, so what would happen in high-born, uh, uh, particularly Florentine, but generally in the Renaissance period, Italian household, is after a woman had been given birth, then the household would bring into her the equivalent of a hot sweet cup of tea, so a sort of hot milk toddy on this birth tray. Um, now, I've given birth a couple of times. I would very much like the hot cup of tea, I would not like to be presented with an image of a woman just about to be seized, raped, or indeed raped um, by Paris. So it's interesting to think what's going on here. Why, why was this such a common image to put on those birth trays? Um, again, if you have any other suggestions, do tell me. But I, the consensus seems to be that there are two things going on here. One is that we're witnessing um, a, a, a real point of junction. So you've given birth. Uh, that's a rite of passage. Clearly being seized and being taken to the East, to Troy, was a rite of passage for Helen, kind of both literally um, and philosophically. But also I wonder if, again, there's a sort of strange, charged compliment in there. It's saying, 
you, like Helen, are the most beautiful woman in the world. So I give you Helen. But never forget that your sexuality is a very bad and a dark thing. So I give you Helen. Don't get ideas above your station. You're here as a breeding mechanism rather than anything else. Um, so I don't know whether I'm being too proto-feminist there. But I just think it's very interesting that this was such a popular image. And I wonder if it was the chaps or the girls who were choosing it on their Desco Departo. Um, again, I'm, I'll, I'll absolutely whiz through here another uh, kind of very interesting theme that we see in the portrayal of Helen. This is uh, in the Wallace collection, so again I put it in because you can go and have a look at it. Beautiful painting, 1769, by Johann George Platzer. Um, and what you see there is Helen in the middle. What you notice is her whiteness. Uh, in a way, it's her snow whiteness waiting to be soiled, and you have these dark hoary hands all around you. Um, art historians will always talk about this as a visual trope, one that we're very familiar with, with whiteness being associated with pure beauty, particularly in Western art. I actually think there's something much more pedestrian and, in fact, much more historically interesting going on here. Um, and we'll come back to that. So hold that image of, of, the, of the white Helen in your mind. Um, Men have always tried to paint her. They've always tried to, to replicate uh, Helen's beauty. This is a painting from 1789 in the Louvre by uh, François-André Vincent. It's a beautiful, huge canvas. And it tells the story of Zeuxis. Do, do, you, did you know, do you remember Zeuxis from your undergraduate days? So Zeuxis was, a, we think, a real, a real character, a painter, a Greek painter. Um, and Zeuxis was given the unenviable task of painting an image of Helen for a temple. The, which temple it is sort of changes depending on which source you read. But we're told he had, to, he had to replicate Helen. How do you do that? How on earth do you paint the most beautiful woman in the world? What is perfect beauty? Um, and the story of Zeuxis was actually used uh, down the centuries to, to talk about the... the struggle of the artist and the impossibility of mankind to replicate the perfection of the natural world. It, it, it is something which is charged at its outset. And as you can see in this task, something that Zeuxis put a lot of effort into. What, what we're told happened, I think this is um, uh, anecdotal rather than actual, but we're told that Zeuxis had to paint this image of Helen. So what he did is he went down to the gymnasium and he spotted all the really pretty boys and he asked all the really pretty boys if they had any sisters back home. Uh, and then said, I'd like to bring your sisters to my studio so I can audition them for the role of Helen. As you can imagine, uh, in the uh, early modern romantic period, this, this was del a delicious subject for painters. The idea that Zeuxis, a painter, is welcoming into his studio all these beauties so he can decide who he should base his image of Helen on. And then Zeuxis comes up with a very sort of cunning plan. Um, he says that what he's going to do is not do a portrait of one of them. He's going to do a kind of composite image. So he's going to take the shoulders of one girl, the nose of the second, the hair of a third, the eyebrow of a fourth, and somehow he is going to manage to create a perfect woman. But, as you can see, and this is consistent in all the retellings of the Zeuxis story, he is destined to fail in his task because you cannot do this. You cannot re recreate Orea Eleni, the world's desire, the most beautiful woman in the world. And as you can see, what dominates this canvas in the Louvre is the, the canvas within the picture 
where Zeuxis has tried, but he has failed. He can never paint a perfect image of Helen. So this, this was a kind of, you know, morality tale really sent to all artists. Don't try to paint Helen. You're always going to be frustrated in your task. However, many have tried. Um, <laughs> I rather like this image. This is uh, from 1869, painted by Frederick Sandys. Uh, this is a kind of sulky teenage Helen. Uh, I kind of think it's great, really. Um, and what's very odd is that uh, Frederick Transis had no idea when he was painting this that actually he was doing something uh, which for Bronze Age archaeologists and historians was strangely appropriate. Um, we now know, looking at the, the bone uh, remains uh, of women in the Bronze Age, that most women are mothers by the age of about 12 or 13. They're grandmothers by the age of 24 or 25. They're dead by the age of 30. Uh, so in fact, I think we have to kind of mind shift a little. And I think we need to imagine the Helen and Paris story much more as Romeo and Juliet. That in any kind of Bronze Age reality, if we think this is a story, I'm going to talk about that a bit more. I'm not don't think that his, Homer was a historian, but I do think there's no doubt that he's picking up on, on uh, remembered versions of real Bronze Age history. We should think, in fact, of Helen in a, perhaps as a kind of spoilt teenager, a, a, a young princess who's just reached puberty. So this is Frederick Sandys' Helen. Um, this is another very common version of Helen that was very popular in the Victorian period. This is the Christian Helen, uh, because this is the Helen who realises, just as it's not too late, what it is that she has done. And as you can see, there is Troy burning behind her. This, this is Helen who seeks redemption. Um, this was painted by Sir Edward John Poynter. It's a very, uh, uh, very popular image, a great favourite of William Gladstone's, who, as you know, uh, was a very keen classicist, also very keen on redeeming fallen <laughs> women. Uh, the details are still being debated by historians, but, but we know that he liked this. Um, slightly later, 1898, Eve de Morgan. Uh, and in a way, I should love this image of Helen, because at least she's not being raped or seized or kind of made responsible for the death of tens of thousands at Troy. Uh, but I have to say, and I hope as fellow classicists, I hate this image of Helen because I think if you showed this to anyone from the 6th century BC to about 500 AD onwards and said, who is this? Nobody would say this is Helen of Troy because Helen is never described, she's Xanthos, of course, because she's of heroic status. She's never described as having blonde hair, wearing wafty rose garments, staring idly just beyond a mirror with Aphrodite's doves around her. She's a, a much darker and feistier creature than that. Really interestingly, it's not actually until Quintus of Smyrna, AD, that we start to get any very specific uh, descriptions of what Helen looked like. We know she was beautiful. Of course, she appears and the men of Troy mutter as she walks on the battlements. What beauty, terrible beauty, they say, beauty like that of a goddess. But what they mean is that she has beauty of a goddess and therefore that her beauty is something which can affect what people do. It's not particular. 
the problem is that it makes men change their mind. It makes men do things they know that they shouldn't do. And that is Helen's power. It is not, as I said, this rather ghastly chocolate box image. So I don't like Evelyn de Morgan. Um, I'm strangely keen on, on this, um, which, as you can probably tell, is uh, a bit of a, uh, an illustration, sort of for a bit of pulp fiction, although actually the private life of Helen of Troy is much cleverer than the, than the title suggests. Um, why I love this image is two, two, two reasons. Uh, one is that the, uh, the illustrator was a man called Earl Berge, and he was asked to come up with images for the private life of Helen of Troy, and he submitted this to the publishers. And they professed to be so horrified by this demonstration of porneia, of unchastity in the Greek sense, uh, <laughs> that they sacked him on the spot, obviously slept on it, and overnight somebody, I suspect, came into office the next day and said, actually, I think that might sell a few copies. <laughs> and so with the most brilliant bit of publishing hypocrisy, it was used anyway, and as you can possibly just about read there, 500,000 copies of this famous novel were sold in the original, so clearly it worked. So I kind of like it because I, I like the story. But also, in a way, I like this because I do think, actually, for the ancients, this is something that they would recognise as belonging to Helen, this demonstration of porneia, and also the incarnation of sex and sexual power. Um, and, and how does this happen? How do we end up with uh, an, an antiquity which really uh, kind of wrestles with the idea of Helen and with her, her uh, the, the kind of extraordinary might of, of her sexual attraction? How is it that, that they deal with her very uh, seriously and yet she has become, down time, this ridiculous pin-up? I mean, I, I've on purpose not mentioned it, but I don't know if... Does anybody admit to seeing the dreadful Hollywood film Troy, uh, which came out, yeah, May. We can all, it's a guilty pleasure. We had to see it to critique it, didn't we? Um, but if you didn't see it, I don't know, don't. But um, in that, again, the kind of ghastly, it was many things were ghastly about it. There was, the, it starts off with um, uh, messengers coming to get Brad Pitt playing Achilles, and he's sort of lying with these two women, and they say, Achilles, Achilles, you must fight. And he rolls over and says, Oh, but I was having such a wonderful do dream. Um, you know, Homer revolving in his grave at this, at this point. But it was also ghastly because um, uh, the Helen of Troy was so wimpy. I mean, just she was a supermodel rather than actress. She sort of dissolved into tears at, at, at every moment. And that is not the Helen that, as classicists, we know and love from the texts. Helen, as Homer gives her to us, is... In, in some ways, a dignified, resourceful queen, a, a woman of power. Uh, she is certainly not a Diane Kruger. She's certainly not a supermodel. So how does this happen? How do we get this degradation of Helen? In some ways, I do blame these girls. These, these uh, The young girls of Sparta. Obviously not an ancient artwork. This one, this is uh, Degas' imagination of the girls of Sparta taunting the boys. Uh, Degas given them some uh, uh, loincloths, or well, not loincloths, sort of, well, they are quite, sort of tea towels to uh, <laughs> cover up their chastity. Um, as you know, we are told by the ancient sources that the uh, ancient Spartan girls ran naked. We still don't know whether that's the case, but we definitely know that they ran. And I do wonder 
if it's the young Spartan girl's adoration of Helen, because of course Helen is Helen of Sparta rather than Helen of Troy, um, that really kind of burns into people's minds this image of her as being troubling and her, and her sexuality, her gorgeousness being a problem. Because for 700 years, uninterrupted, the young girls of Sparta and some others in the Spartan community worshipped Helen. They adored her. There's a conflation here, I think, with a, with a primitive nature goddess and with the heroine Helen, but in their minds, they very happily conflate the two. Uh, so we have these worship sites of Helen down by the river, up on the Menelaean, the, the lovely Menelaean, where Helen and Menelaus were, were both honoured. Um, but we know that the Spartan girls would make their way up to the Menelaean, it's rather beautiful, about five kilometres outside Sparta, up to this lovely hill, Thrapney. And if you go up there, you you get an extraordinary sense of, of this woman's reach, because there you are on this beautiful hill, very, um, I mean, I'm not sort of fae, but it has got a sort of spiritual feel to it. There's this charged, warm wind that blows around the place. You have the river Eurotas winding through the fertile valley below. You have the beautiful mountains that keep their snow long into summer. And who is chosen to be honoured there? It could be Heracles. Sparta's great hero, it could be Zeus, it could be Hera, but no, it's not, it's, it's Helen and Menelaus. And we know that the Spartan girls went up there because we have the objects that they left behind. A lovely bronze perfume bottle eng engraved to Helen, a very vicious-looking meat hook, which shows us that sacrifices were made in honour of Helen. So she was worshipped with a kind of ardency by the Spartan girls, um, who in a way I think wanted to sort of drum uh, the essence of Helen out of out of the earth, and of course, this was very troubling for the Athenians. They they knew about this worship of Helen. Sparta had, of course, become Athens' great enemy during the Peloponnesian War, and I think it's at this point that we really start to find the idea of Helen as as, as trouble starting to to seed and then to take hold. So I do blame these girls, although of course I love them as well. There's one of our lovely Spartan girls. This is from Dodona. Um, for years we were told this was a Spartan girl racing. I don't know anybody who can run a race with their heads turned backwards. Uh, so I think she's dancing. Uh, these are the thigh flashers, we're called, because they did this extraordinary dance where they... I'm not going to do it. I normally do it as a demonstration. Actually, should I do one? So this is what the Spartan girls used to do in honour of Helen. They used to touch their bottoms with their heels... Um, we're told they did it up to about 150 times as a warm-up. I'm slightly out of breath for one, so please don't try it at home. But, um, uh, you know, they, 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 they definitely had a sense of, of Helen's power, the Spartan girls. And interestingly, she was worshipped elsewhere too. She was worshipped in Egypt, we know. She was worshipped in Attica. Uh, she was worshipped in uh, Syria, uh, well, Samaria. She was worshipped, interestingly too, at Troy. Uh, now, this is a, an image of, of the Bronze Age Troy, uh, uh, given to us by the archaeologists who are currently excavating there. Very interesting, in, in Troy, we know that Helen was worshipped as Helen Adrastea, Helen the Destroyer. And we know this from one letter, it's rather for all the historians in the room, kind of brilliant bit of his, historical detective work that was done by somebody. One letter that was written to the uh, emperors Marcus Aurelius and Commodus uh, by a Christian and a Christian is really pleading uh, for, for persecutions to stop. He's saying, it's rather sweet, he says, um, listen, we're just a tiny, tiny sect. 
We're not really going to catch on. It's not like we're going to become a world religion or anything. Uh, we're just, you know, a little cult minding our own business, as with the cult of Helen Adrastrea, Helen the Destroyer at Troy. So kind of rather, rather neat that that's how we hear about Helen. But if you go to Troy, you understand. If you go now, if you went there through time, you would understand why she was worshipped as Helen the Destroyer because we have 42 recognised habitation layers there. This is a city that is destroyed time after time after time and Helen has become the scapegoat for that destruction. Um, just, I'm, I'm going to have to speed up and, and run through, but just so you can see, this is the lower town uh, of Troy so that's being excavated at the moment. The exciting thing about the site of Troy is that we now know it's at least 15 times bigger than we thought it was 10 years or so ago. This is a substantial city. We've always been troubled um, by its kind of diminutive size, but actually it looks like it's, it's getting bigger and bigger as the spades go in. Um, Again, just very quickly, an artist's um, image of Troy from the current excavations. As I said, Homer is clearly not a historian. He is far greater than a historian. But very interesting to us that every uh, excavating season, there is something that comes out of the earth that matches directly and in minute detail with a line of Homer. So he didn't make it all up. He is remembering something uh, as you'll remember, uh, Troy is described as a place where horses were very important. Hector is a tamer of horses. Uh, there are an extraordinary number of horse bones that have been discovered in the digs at Troy. So something's going on there. The horses are being traded or, or tamed. Um, the sloping walls of Troy, they do indeed slope. Uh, and what about the women? So far, we haven't got any images uh, of women either from Sparta or from Troy from 1200 BC, the kind of most likely time of some kind of conflict. I don't think there was a single uh, Trojan War. I think that, I, I think that there, this was something which speaks of actually conflicts over two generations. Um, but if we were to try to imagine a Bronze Age Helen, if we sort of want to think that it could possibly be based on a Bronze Age princess rather than just an idea of womanhood, then we would be looking at a, a, a creature a bit like this. It's a bit of a cheat, this. You'll probably recognise these are images from uh, the island of Santorini, Thera. Uh, so they date to around 1600 BC, but they are just so beautiful and they do show us what the high-born Bronze Age woman would have looked like. This is a mature woman. We know that because her hair's grown long. She's got these, I don't know if you can see, brilliantly massive pendulous breasts uh, hanging down. Uh, another image from Tiryns, uh, so this is from slightly later, it's highly reproduced, uh, but an image of the kind of, of Bronze Age woman that, that would have uh, held sway in those palaces. Um, I should just say one reason, uh, I haven't gone completely mad when I'm talking about the Bronze Age reality when it comes to Helen. Um, there's a really fantastic uh, Hittite cuneiform tablet uh, that Trevor Bryce has been studying, uh, which looks at uh, a conflict that was resolved by Hittite negotiators between the states of Ugarit and Amuru. So again, we're talking about 1260 BC, so exactly the kind of time frame for uh, a Trojan War. Um, very interestingly, in this tablet, and this isn't literature, it's not high-flown poetry, it's boring office. It's an office copy of a boring legal negotiation. And on this, on this Hittite cuneiform tablet, we learn that the negotiators are brought in because the states of Ugarit and Amuru have declared war on one another because of the infidelity of a princess who was sent over as part of a, a, a diplomatic marriage alliance. 
And isn't that interesting? I'm not saying that's Helen, but isn't that interesting that uh, in the Bronze Age, the infidelity of a princess was absolutely just cause for war. Um, so, so to go back to the women, here we have um, a woman from Tiryns holding this Pixis, this cosmetics box. And why I wanted to show you this image is this relates oddly uh, to that image from the Wallace collection of Helen as perfectly white. Um, We've been told, you, you'll, I'm sure we'll all have seen the debates, why are women represented as, as being white on these Bronze Age uh, walls and men as darker. One of the reasons we are sure now is that on analysis of the interior of these cosmetic boxes, which are often buried with women, uh, there are high percentages of white lead oxide. And it looks like these boxes were full of a white lead paint. Now, if you cover your face and your arms and your chests with white paint, you look extraordinary. If you cover yourself with white lead paint, you are obviously slowly poisoning yourself. Uh, we all know from our dear Elizabeth I the issues with white lead use. And very interesting now, archaeologists are looking at whether actually that's one of the reasons all these high-born women are dying by the age of about 30. Is it not just disease and childbirth? Are they actually slowly poisoning themselves to death with uh, white lead? Um, so Helen, Helen, is she a goddess? Is she a princess? Is she a sorceress? Um, a beautiful Minoan ring showing the kinds of things that these Bronze Age women got up to, ecstatically working themselves up into a ritual frenzy here. Uh, <laughs> women were, of course, considered, uh, in a way, those who had a kind of hotline to the gods and to the spirit world. And one of the reasons that we know they were thought to have this privileged access was their use of this stuff. Does anybody recognise what that is? Opium. Yeah, it's, a, it's a brooch. Very beautiful brooch with a, uh, a bronze shaft and a rock crystal head. Beautiful representation of, a, of an opium poppy. And again, as the digs go on, we're finding more and more traces of the use of opium and laudanum in Bronze Age culture, burnt poppy seeds, the interiors of these clay pots. Um, I think they, they had a whale of a time, I think, those Bronze Age aristocrats when they came back from war. And you'll know from your Homer that, of course, Helen comes back we're told that she mixes up this druggy brew to make the men forget their sorrows. And it's a passage that has been so analysed by scholars. Is this painting Helen as a sorceress? Or, question mark, is this again another oral memory of the real flesh and blood roles of the real women who operated in those citadels, who were in charge of creating this, uh, these heady laudanum brews and then giving them to the returning warriors. I, I suggest the coincidence is, is too neat for it to be just a coincidence. So I think we have to imagine these Bronze Age women having real status in society, having a hotline to the gods and therefore being feared uh, in many, and respected in many ways. Um, it's, I'm whisking through. Showing you this, just, just this is completely nostalgic. I was shown this image when I was an undergraduate at Oxford. I was shown it uh, and, and uh, uh, I was told this is 
a brilliant image of the interior of a Bronze Age palace. This is the throne room in Pylos. Um, it gives a perfect uh, representation of Bronze Age life, and yet it is inaccurate in every detail. It's one of those kind of fantastic Oxford moments. So sort of look at it through half-closed eyes. This is an image of the interior um, of, of, of the kind of world where a kind of Helen would have lived. As you can see, beauty, sumptuousness is something which really matters to this culture, and we mustn't forget that for them... Beauty of all kinds, uh, both living, both organic and inorganic, was a gift from the gods. There's just no doubt about it. So if you are beautiful, if you're blessed in some way, if you did indeed have some kind of golden hair, and we, we know that those women that I showed you from Thera, uh, one of the women who's allowed to approach the goddess has this kind of tawny red hair. Maybe there was a Helen who had this, this interesting coloured hair. You would be thought to be special. So the face that launched a thousand ships... Um, this is my, this is what I think she is. This is Helen, this is the image of, uh, from the cult centre in Mycenae. We don't know who she is. We don't know whether she's a goddess or a high priestess. Uh, but what is very interesting, again, is that makeup that I was talking to you about before. White, completely white face, suns tattooed or painted onto her cheeks and onto her chin and her forehead hair dressed so it looks as though she has snakes growing out of her head. We see this in all the representations um, of women. And if you go, ladies and gentlemen, to uh, four villages in Bulgaria and go to traditional, both Christian and Islamic weddings, the brides on their bridal night are made up exactly like this still to this day. It is an extraordinary extraordinary experience of being in two times at once if you go and look at this so they have white faces and they have these red suns on their chins and on their cheeks so I think this is the face that launched a thousand ships and yet this is <laughs> our Helen isn't it uh, this is this is Helen the western white blonde floozy uh, who brought all those men to her bed and to their deaths and as you can see that previous image from the Bronze Age is very Eastern feeling. Here, Helen is being made very distinctly Western as opposed to, to the dark Southerner, the, the, the Negro slave who is with her. Um, this was painted in 1914, obviously a comment on the outbreak of the First World War by Bryson Burroughs. But there we have Helen the whore, naked, powdering herself as Troy burns behind her. Um, and it was, when I was researching the book, it was, I have to say, one of the most depressing facts for me that I looked through 2,700 years of classical reception and Helen is referred to as a whore more than anything else. This is, this is the most favoured epithet for her. She is a whore, of course, because we were told by those 5th century dramatists that she took the golden treasures of the East, where well, that's what, how Paris wooed her. But then in, in the Christian world, she becomes a whore because her sin becomes not that of a goddess, not that of Aphrodite, but against a sin, against the one true God. Um, and I'm just, because it's the end of the evening and we're, we're all grown-ups and I'm running off into a car to go and film, I'm going to um, leave you with just a few, few fruity descriptions um, of Helen, Helen the whore to give us something to think about on the way home. Um, uh, she's called, as I said, uh, you know, a, a Shakespeare has her a strumpet, a, she's called a, a, a 
tarts, a flirt, a queen, Chaucer, interesting, describes her as queen, Q-U-E-N-E, uh, which means uh, a prostitute, as well as queen, Q-U-E-N-E, and he interchanges the two. Um, but the man, I think, who enjoyed writing about Helen the Hall most of all um, is a young monk called Joseph of Exeter, um, now, Joseph of Exeter wrote his own version of the Trojan War that ran to six volumes, and one of the volumes pretty much just consists of a description of the dreadfulness of Helen. Um, he gives a physical description of her, and he talks, take, takes her bit by bit in body parts, and he starts with her head, and she says, there stands Helen of a Troy. Her nose, evil. Her mouth, evil, her chest evil, and then you can imagine the quill trembling as he goes out of her lower regions, the most evil of all. Um, and then he then describes uh, Helen's seduction of Paris. Uh, this was uh, written in 1184. Um, and you just have to imagine that this is what was being um, composed to be read out to his fellow monks before breakfast. <laughs> Lying on him with her whole body, she, Helen, opens her legs, presses him with her mouth, and robs him of his semen. I can imagine the gruel getting a bit shaky <laughs> at, this, at this point. And as his ardour abates the purple bed linen, again, purple is, is Helen's colour, that was privy to their sin, it bears witness to his unseen dew. What evil, O oh, wicked woman, were you able to put a check on such passionate desire? Was your lust waiting for a purchaser. Your breasts are evil, your lips, your nose, even your liver and your kidneys are dark. I love this sort of dog leg into her intestines. What marvellous power in the gentle sex. Woman holds back her precipitate lust to obtain wealth and does not deign to give joy unless her smile has been paid for. Um, and I would love to say that we've got over the idea that oh. Helen is uh, beautiful and powerful and therefore is, is clearly a whore. Um, but as I was writing this book, somebody said, oh, you must turn on CNN. There's a, um, a commentator called Jeffrey Tubin who is describing the scandal of Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> and uh, his kind of parting words on CNN to a global audience of 803 million, uh, 83 million was... Um, as has been noted in the history of scandal, from Helen of Troy to Monica of Beverly Hills. Uh, great, I know. Then wait for it. Sex has a way of robbing the male intellect of his full male intellectual capacity. So there we are. So I'm not going to give uh, Jeffrey Tubin the last word. I think we will give Helen the last word. Um, and this is really just a bit of doggerel written in 1938 by Lord Dunsany. But I offer it to you because I think, as an ancient historian and offered to you as classicists, it might have been written in 1938, but in many ways, I think that this is Helen as she would have been understand, understood by the ancient world. And were you pleased, they asked of Helen in hell? Pleased, answered she, when all Troy's towers fell, and dead were Priam's sons and lost his throne, and such a war was fought as none had known, and even the gods took part, and all because of me alone? Pleased? I should say I was. <laughs> Thank you very much.